Hey guys, what's going on? Nez Hoover here with Bars Loaded, Episode 3. We sat down with Esteban Lucero of Athlete Ready here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We discussed genetics, athletic background, training of young athletes, and we kind of compared different ideas on some of that stuff. But Esteban was a former football player, arena football player, and he has some great input and very knowledgeable in this area. I look forward to working with him going forward, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thank you again for all your support, and here's episode three, Bars Loaded. But yeah, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. I, well, I look at, I guess it's, you know, what you were saying with Dave Tate, I've heard him talk about shit comes full circle and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. No, I mean, <clears throat> you, if, if you even look back to like Soviet Eastern Bloc type training, I mean, you know, they, they were doing conjugate, like Louis says, like 60 years ago or something yeah. crazy like that, you know, um, when they were really just dominating Olympic, Olympic lifting, you know, so... Yeah, you're right. It probably does go full. But even like Louis, uh, he's changed up what he's done through the years. Yeah. Like he's even, his book of methods, like he's changed a bunch of stuff since he first wrote the first one. Yeah. You know, a bunch of his stuff. Yeah. Um, But I think it comes to like, just from like weightlifting too, Mm -hmm. or, or powerlifting is we're starting to see like in powerlifting, I guess better athletes coming to powerlifting now. Mm-hmm. Before it was, you know, it was not the best athletes. Strong dudes, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But genetically, the genetics, I guess, are going up. You know, you can see that. Yeah. And like a Larry Will step. Yeah, like a fucking kid's twenty-one years old. Fucking. Twenty-one seventy total. I just saw him bench six oh five. That's unreal. We and like, he's got long arms. Yeah. But. That kid probably is a pretty good athlete, too. Yeah, no question. Like, I mean, you see it all the time with athletes. <clears throat> yeah. Athletes that are better athletes, better genetically gifted athletes, adapt to situations a whole lot better than, you know. I mean, I hate to say it. Like, I would never tell a kid not to work hard. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. There's some guys who are just kind of born guys, that way. Yeah, they're just born that way, like, you know. Yeah, I, I've always said that about, like, NFL players. Yeah, yeah, I've met guys when I played, like, arena who are just, like, they wake up in the morning and they're just better athletically than you. And there's not yeah. much you can do about it. You know, they're, those guys who would probably be in the NFL, you know, just based purely on genetics. Like, they just come out of the box that way. Well, I mean, you know, we had Kenyon. <clears throat> come, he spent, you know, basically four months with us. Mm-hmm. Well, about, well, about three months with us. Dude's a freak. Mm-hmm. Like, genetically, just walks in. Mm-hmm. He said he had taken, like, a month off. Mm-hmm. And he's freaking shredded. Like... Yeah. And has never really done... Yeah. Anything. Like, I mean, not to say he hasn't done anything, but... Like, anything to look that way. hmm You know, he's in the NFL because... You know, genetics and then, you know, obviously work ethic helped push that forward. Yeah. Yeah, and other guys out there, I mean, they could they could get strong just by like moving furniture in and out of a garage like over the summer, you know. Yeah. I mean, they can do whatever they want just for whatever reason their body responds to that stimulus better than better than you could ever ask for, you know, like or, Larry Wills guy. Or I've seen it with <coughs> with good when you get a good athlete in the gym teaching them how to squat. Mm-hmm. They're going to adapt and learn how to squat a lot easier than someone that's not a good athlete, but works hard. Yeah. 
you know, I'm sure you see kids all the time that fucking, they work their asses off. And those are the kids you want. Mm -hmm. They work their asses off. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't got it, you don't got it. Yeah. I mean, both of us, you know, played sports to a decent, you know, you played some arena, you played college football, I played college baseball, like, but we were still not gifted enough to, Yeah. like, I guess my question is, is there anything you could have done to have been in the NFL? Right. Um, well, I, I mean, as close as I got was like combine, you know, yeah. I got combine and then I got a call from like an agent and that was about it, you know, but yeah, it's genetically, I think I, I had kind of hit my ceiling. Now, probably I could have done a better job of like maintaining a diet and stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, cause I played, I played division two football, so I played division like, two. Yeah. Training table and so. stuff like that. I mean, we had some of that, some of those amenities, but yeah. it wasn't as regulated as, you know, probably a more well-funded program. That being said, you know, there were a lot of things diet wise I could probably done to help myself out, but you know, I go back and forth because <clears throat> I played against guys, you know, who were on rosters. Like, uh, you know, one of one of the guys that I played against, he's a fullback. He was on the Dallas Cowboys roster this last year. You know, just incredibly gifted athlete. You know, and, but he also worked hard too. You know, and I think the some of those guys, and, and not to say that I could have done it, you know, because I, I don't know that I have the measurables. I really don't think I do. But some of those guys just work so incredibly hard. Like a J.J. Watt character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Obviously, he's 6'4". Six, six you know, like, that you helps. can't teach that. But they say he's such a hard worker and he lives such a lifestyle that he's probably... He he may have not been in the NFL had he not had the work ethic to go with him. So, I don't know. I guess to answer your question, me, probably not. <laughs> you know, because I've met guys like that. and that, You know what I... It's, it's it's hard to bat, battle those genetics. I mean, it's, it's well, like... Well, and that, that's kind of like me too, so... <clears throat> I used to always have this thing, like... You play baseball, and you see a guy that's 6'3", 6'4", mm-hmm. and he's throwing, like, 81 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And... But he's getting looks. Yeah. Why is he getting looks? Yeah. Because he's 6'3", 6'4". Yeah. I, I remember specifically, there was a catcher we played, played against in my conference, and he was 6'2", 6'3". He ended up beating me out for all conference mm. and I was a better catcher mm. but the problem was I was 5'8", five, 5'9", five, mm. and so when people go to see me I'm going to have to do a lot to get their attention for him he just has to do a little bit and oh okay yeah you know, that makes as, sense yeah. I mean going, I guess from a scout standpoint there's all these freaking scouts we can <clears throat> go yeah. back I'll talk to you about that later but, uh, like, if you're a scout, you go to see a game, mm-hmm. what are you going to see first? Yeah. The yeah. measurables, right? Yeah, the eyeball test. Yeah. That's the first thing you look for. Especially, like, a guy, like, you, you play, like, football is huge. Like, guys want to look good. Mm-hmm. They want to look the part. Mm-hmm. So, at least, that's why I tell guys, if you suck, at least look good. Yeah. You might get a look. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Exactly. So, like, so, if they go see a 6'3 catcher... <laughs> And a five eight catcher with the same attributes, you know, who are they probably gonna get talk to first? Yeah, you know, the guy with, that was a little more genetically gifted. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, you see that all the time, especially at the Division two level. I, I feel like, you know, because I went to junior college first, and then I, when I played arena, I would say those those two atmospheres or those two um, avenues, I saw better athletes than I saw at the, the Division two level. What I did see. 
at Fort Lewis was um, great football players, like guys who may not have started out as that five star prospect, yeah, and cultivated themselves into that next level athlete. And you know, my my quarterback is a great example of his name is Tim Jenkins. He played at St. Louis, and like he might have been a half a star guy coming out of high yeah. school. You know, he he always tells a story like he was like sixth or seventh on the depth chart when he first got there, and I remember seeing him. You know, from year to year, I was there forever, so I got to see yeah. him, you know, progress over time, and, like, he just had this undeniable work ethic and, and willingness to kind of hone his craft, you know, so I saw some really great football players when yeah. I was there, and then the interesting thing is, you know, when you go out to to combine and stuff like that, and you, you get to see, you know, a, a, a better picture of what else is out there, you get kind of the feelings, but if you're, if you're a decent, you know, ball player or whatever... You get kind of the feeling that hey, I can I can play with these guys. You know, they probably look like Tarzan. You know, yeah. and, but I I can do it. You know, a good example we had a linebacker, um, Phil Odell, who's like led the conference tackles. You know, X X one Z, just all these accolades, and he went to um he went to an All Star game and won the MVP. You know, but he's not that six three guy. You know, yeah. he's not he's probably. 205, soaking wet, changing his pockets, you know, but just tremendous football player with undeniable and, work and, ethic. Well, even, like, in football, like, like, I was always not a bad football player mm-hmm. because I had the instincts. Just from growing up, I watched football, like, I yeah. like I had good instincts. Mm-hmm. Like, I could have went and pl- played junior college football, but at the time, I was a 5'8", 185-pound linebacker, like, yeah. I'm just going to get my shit beat in all, all day long mm-hmm. I mean you're a big guy and you know phys- how physically demanding I'm sure Division 2 football was you know what it the thing that people don't or underestimate is like the toll that it has on your body I think that's people think like football is recreation in college you know to some extent yeah. you know they don't entirely grasp like why you can't have a job and stuff like that but you're right like physically it was a day in day out thing you're always battling um you know, I, I would say <clears throat> probably like like I keep going back to like you know Mexican military institute when I did junior college. God, you know the the first month was like a total wake up call just because you're surround. We had like four Division one you know linemen on our t- defensive yeah. linemen on our team, and you know you go from and they just were there because they couldn't qualify. Yeah, academically. yeah exactly. Just really bizarre circumstances. One was from Samoa. He ended up playing for NC State. You know, he sat Christian Ponder when NC State beat yeah. Florida State, um, I think, for the ACC championship. Like, you know, and he's just there. And, like, so the first month is, like, a huge acclimation. Now, some guys don't go through that if they have the, the you know, the, the intangibles. You yeah. know, they have that fast-twitch muscle fiber and stuff like that. But, yeah, no, uh, it's, it's one of those things where it's incredibly, incredibly demanding no matter where you go. And I think that people underestimate that uh, pretty often, you know. People... I, I've seen, I don't know how many guys just wash out because it just wasn't for them. Well, that's like uh, my <laughs> uncle. He he led the state in rushing like early in the 90s, I think 90, 91. And he went to go play at Columbia. You know, it was Ivy League. Mm-hmm. But he just talked about how physically, like, he said if you look back, he would have played baseball. Yeah. He's not a big dude. He was fast, you know, mm-hmm. had the instincts as a running back, but he was 5'8", you know, yeah. 175, 180, soaking wet, mm-hmm. you know. And he just how he still has injuries that he runs yeah. marathons now, but he still has a back issue and just being beat to shit every day. Yeah. He played. He was in the backfield with Marcellus Wiley. Oh wow! 
And Marcel Soraya at the time was a running back. Six <laughs> four. Yeah. You know, two fifty, probably like, two sixty. Like an eighty George type character. And he said he was just he was faster than shit, like he was bigger, <laughs> physically better than everyone you know, on the mm-hmm. field. And he was like, just how physically gifted those guys are, even in the Ivy League. That's not even Yeah, that's, that's not, not even division one, like high FBS yeah. type stuff, yeah. Yeah, no question. No, it's a it, it's a really interesting dynamic, you know. It, it, I do like to, you know, I do like to see and, and get athletes just to work hard to see where their ceiling is. You know, I, I, I think one of the greatest. We've all played with that guy that had the genetics but didn't have work ethic. That you know, and I, I think the biggest disservice you can do to a kid is is tell him, you know what, it it maybe you should start looking for other sports, man. Maybe, no, you know, no. You know, I think it's hard because I see it in the youth sports, especially like, hey, man, you just don't got it, like. Who are you to tell this kid yeah, exactly. what he's going to be in 10 years and 15 years when he kind of hits that puberty or that, yeah, that growth spur or something Especially like that, before you know? they mature. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. Like, but who's to say, you know, told me when I was 12 years old, <laughs> you know, you should stop playing because mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to be a major league. That's the only reason to play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sports has taught you a shit ton about life, you know, how to fail. How to you know deal with failure? I think that's a big one, especially like in baseball. Yeah, you you get out seven out of ten times. Yeah, you have to. It's a very frustrating game because you have to deal with failure. And and at the end of the day, you know it helped you know me and you and so many other people get our education. Yeah, no, no, that's huge. I I think the probably for me, it's always been the the ability to manage stress was something that I took away from. From sports just in general is just the ability to kind of have your back against the wall and manage that you know and manage the guys around you to a certain degree make sure everybody kind of keeps their head you know and to work with other people <clears throat> yeah to be able to take like criticism from someone else oh man yeah yeah definitely i mean um, how many times i'm sure you're told you're a piece of shit and, <laughs> you know you were worthless and yeah, no kidding. I don't even know if I'm a good football player still. Yeah. <laughs> Based on some of those those film sessions, but no, you're right. You know what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. What is this? You know, <laughs> there's some things I heard in film that I, I would never repeat. You know, <laughs> yeah. Or you you would never want a kid to hear. But yeah. at the same time, like that's built you like mm-hmm. into you know who you are today, as opposed to I mean. Let's be honest. Some of these kids are freaking soft. Yeah. No. At the end of the day, I mean, you just got to suck it up. And you know, I had a, I had one coach who would ride me like crazy. He he was a redhead guy, super fiery, passionate, angry. You know, and uh, he used to just hammer me and hammer me. And at the time, like I couldn't I couldn't take it. I just couldn't stand it. I was like, this guy is out of his mind. Like, you know, and, <clears throat> and there were probably a lot of things going on. I was a young player. Probably didn't have my head on straight. You know, and. He was a young coach, you know, so we just kind of battled. But he, when I transitioned to playing arena, God, I just looked at every single thing that he taught me, you know, and I remembered all those little nuances and all those things that he had taught me and made me better, you know. And, and it took some, it took some waiting through the garbage to figure that out, you know. Like I had to really, really kind of try to decipher his message, and even years later, but well, it made me it a better player. It doesn't translate right. Like I, I heard this one time, you know, being a coach. They say, you know, not every coach you've had is bad and not every coach you've had is good. Mm-hmm. But take certain things, certain nuggets from each yeah. each yeah. coach and make it your own. Mm-hmm. You know, now I coach in a certain way, you know, is different from, you know, 
everyone else I've played for mm-hmm. or been around, but at the same time, it's made me what I think, you know, is the best coach I can be. Yeah. You know, I can always get better. I'm still young in my coaching. I've been coaching, you know, five years or whatever it is. Um, but I think, you know, going back, if we go back to training, it's the same way. Like, yeah. you know, and the biggest thing with training, like I feel is there's no absolute. Yeah. If there was one way to do it, none of us would have jobs. Everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Everyone would be doing it. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting point. You know, I, I think we kind of come from similar, yeah. similar veins as far as like, you know, <clears throat> wanting to push heavy weight and do a lot of that stuff. But I think in our upbringing, we've kind of gone different ways. So like I was a huge, huge like believer in progressive overload and, and linear periodization. And I still am. I still yeah. am in a lot of respects. I mean, it's tried and true. It's proven, you know, and it keeps getting me better over time. Um, Especially like the submaximal training component, you know. Very rarely do I do like a like a a max effort day, you know. But ultimately, I've taken what I know and I've applied it, you know, across the board, and I, I've implemented all these different tools. You know, I, I've had the luxury of being able to see, you know, both the powerlifter side of it, and you know, the sport performance side of it, and the injury prevention side of it. You know, so that that kind of that's kind of something that we like to implemented athlete ready is not just like one style it's it's yeah. going to be a, a myriad of styles kind of blended together to make them that makes the most sense for our athletes well and i think too you know if you get caught in this you know your way is the only way mm-hmm. then you're doing a disservice to yourself and to your athletes and your business or whatever you call it yeah um you know i think i've been doing this for about 10 years now and at the same time I didn't come through the exercise mm-hmm. you know I didn't come through academia like I didn't learn all these things most of the stuff I learned is through you know my trials and experiments mm-hmm. and you know luckily I, I, I had a good coach uh, to start you know <clears throat> training but at the same time I see the key word I think you put is apply like mm-hmm. application is you know we know guys that are super smart I ran into someone yesterday <clears throat> I won't say names, but I ran into someone yesterday who has exercise science, has all these different degrees, mm-hmm. and that person knows absolutely nothing about training anyone. Yeah. I've seen this person, and I say this person, <laughs> but uh, I've this seen this person. person not named. <laughs> this person that's not named um, in the gym, and basically they were you know, asking me what to do. Yeah. And I mean, I, it, I appreciate it. And it, I look back, you know, that's a lot, you know, the work that I've put in and, you know, continue to do. But at the same time, like that, that's not everything. I, I mean, you see it too, because you've come from that side yeah. and I'm sure you've had people in your class or you graduated with or whatever mm-hmm. that don't know shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. You know, it's, it's one of those things where the rubber meets the road. And, and people's conception of the way it works and sometimes the way it actually turns out can be two very different things. Um, you know, we see that we see that sometimes when we're trying to educate coaches, especially, you know, oh, my athlete needs this, my athlete needs that, or, you know, she needs to be faster, he needs to be more explosive, he needs to have this or that and the other thing. And, you know, the, <clears throat> the thing that I always circle back to is not only strength but movement quality for a lot of these parents and coaches. And the hard thing is conveying that, you know, because... 
you run into their years of experience and their years of the way they've always done it. And so trying to trying to bridge that gap and make it something that that makes sense and, and apply it to their athletes. You know, like I work with a lot of volleyball players and basketball players and stuff like that. And you know, <clears throat> yeah, trying to get them to understand why this makes the most sense for you. You know, I, I know you appreciate explosion, explosiveness and power and, you know, change of direction, all that stuff. But let me show you how this is going to improve those things. Well, I think, I think another word you said there is explosiveness. Like mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people talk about. Oh, they need to be explosive. Yeah. Everyone needs to be explosive. Okay. Like no kidding, but how do you get there and why aren't you explosive? Yeah. Right yeah, now. Yes. And if you are, can we get you even more? Explosive? Like that's the same thing. Like with Kenya, when Kenya came in, the whole reason he came in is he needed to get stronger. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to make that guy explosive. Yeah. The kid was explosive by the time he learned how to walk. Yeah, he's got that. You know, yeah. he's got it. Like, you know, he can jump, he can run, he's agile, his footwork is <clears throat> ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, it showed, you know, the time when he was at Oregon. I, I look at some of his videos at Oregon and mm-hmm. just, you know, that fast moving offense, mm-hmm. you know. And he did all that without his whole thing was coming in, and he needed to get stronger. Yeah, he, we talk about you know these athletes that are in the NFL, how big they are, mm-hmm. and you know that that's kind of what he struggles with right now. Yeah, you know the physical part. <clears throat> so let me ask you this: like, what what made you guys come to that assessment? Like, what about when when Kenyon came in and he said, "Hey, I need to be stronger." What made you guys like agree and say, that, yeah, that's probably the root of the issue. How, you know, and, and proceed kind of with your plan. Like, well, what about his physical intangibles told you to kind of go in that direction? I mean, what kind of assessment? Well, we talked. Some of that? We talked for a little while, and before he ever game came in, mm-hmm. we we're like kind of kind of where you're at and different stuff like that. So when he first came in, you know, we saw, we started doing a few <clears throat> things, just basically the stuff that you know, kind of we're good at. Mm-hmm. We taught uh, taught him how to squat, taught him how to deadlift, obviously. And as we went through it, if I knew, if I could say right now that I knew when he first came in what exactly he needed, I'd be a freaking liar. No. But as we got through, we figured out that he needed a little more absolute strength. Like his hands, you put your hands on him, he's a very strong dude. Yeah. Yeah, no question. I can see that. Hey, guys. How hey, you what doing? are you doing? Um, just working He's going, brother. Hey, All right, so we're already, we already got going. But Jordan oh, and Ashley are late. They hey, we got to trade. <laughs> got to get games. All the games. So Jordan and Ashley Chavez just joined us. Um, we're here with Esteban Lucero. That's with Athlete Ready. And right now we're, we're, uh, we're actually just talking about Kenyon when we came through and what, how we assessed you know, why he needed more strength and, and, you know, kind of what direction we went with him and you spent more time with him. So yeah, big thing with Kenyon is that in the NFL, like he has all the athleticism in the world. He's a very gifted athlete, but one thing that he didn't have is obviously an extra 25 pounds on him. And so with that being said, it's very difficult for someone with an athlete of his caliber with such a high metabolism to be able to have the intake of 
enough quality food in order to make significant weight gains in order to uh, reach a heavier weight. So rather than focusing so much on increasing his weight by 15 to 25 pounds, we rather put on 5 to 10 pounds of quality weight and maximize his strength at his current or slightly above body weight. So with him being able to be a lot stronger at the same body weight, he's still able to maintain his quickness, his agility, his speed, and his endurance. The biggest difference is his muscular endurance and his muscular strength was significantly higher at the end of our training when he was going into his preseason work than when he first came to us and then stronger than he was the prior preseason. I think, well, the biggest thing too is, I think this goes back to like, you know, people ask, well, why are we going this direction? Like with John Jones and different stuff like that. And I think the biggest thing why we're doing, doing what we're doing, obviously that's our bread and butter. But at the same time, um, these fighters and these athletes, Kenyon could have put 25 pounds on his frame Mm. And still be successful. And yeah. still be as quick and uh, as mobile as he is. But at the same time, so we have to figure out a way to, to maximize that strength within the framework of where, uh, along with fighters. You guys deal with some fighters. Yeah. How do you get them stronger without them gaining weight? Yeah. And worrying about their weight cut. Mm-hmm. Are you, uh, yeah, so, that, yeah, just kind of. Um, well, in the past, what I've seen, you know, with a lot of our guys, it is just improving, you know, muscular strength and over time, you know, improving power. Um, <clears throat> now, for some of the guys, what I have seen is, you know, they're able to develop, I, I guess, um, just more dense muscle fiber. You know, that's that's the difference maker for a lot of them. Um, and a lot of them, it, it comes down to learning how to express that power, too. Um, so one of the things that we do pretty well, I think, is... And, and this is just kind of speaking on behalf of Coach Jerry because he does a lot of the work with the fighters. But um, he does he does an awesome job of improving just their base strength, their absolute strength, right? Because a lot of them are lacking that. I think people underestimate. I mean, people see fighters and they think athlete. And sometimes those things aren't synonymous necessarily. Yeah. Um, and, and not to say those guys aren't athlete, but they're incredibly skilled. Uh, you know, technicians and well, whatever they do. It's gone. They've gone. They've become better athletes. Yeah. Ten years ago, they were specialists. Yeah. They yeah. Exactly. Jiu-jitsu guys, or they were. You know. So our job is kind of to make them more well-rounded. Yeah. I guess you can say. Um, and for a lot of those guys, and you're right, they do lack some absolute strength. And when they acquire that strength, it doesn't. I mean, being stronger doesn't necessarily mean you have to put weight on you guys. Yeah. Like um, That's why there's weight classes. Yeah, exactly. You don't necessarily need to put weight on just to, um, you know, add, add some strength. But for a lot of the guys, you're right. That's that's exactly what they need. And for us, the other component is making sure that they can express that power. And so we do a ton of movement stuff in regards to just making them more efficient athletes. You know, if you look at a lot of MMA fighters right now, Carlos Condit's like a perfect example. Um, you know, they're using movement coaches more and more frequently. To, to be more efficient whenever they're moving around the ring. Um, so we do a degree of that stuff. We make sure we focus on their uh, mobility, um, you know, between their ankles, their hips, um, their T-spine, all those things. And then, of course, we work on the motor control component of stability. Um, so I, I would say that, <clears throat> coupled with the strength component, 
is really, really what we like to do with our guys. Um, now, for a guy like John Dodson, <clears throat> if he starts at a 135-pound deadlift, right, and we, we use a trap bar just because he doesn't necessarily need to do a straight bar right now. Um, <clears throat> the point of his career. Like, yeah, so we, yeah, the risk-reward isn't really there. Uh, so with him... If we can take him from a 135-pound deadlift to like a 315-pound deadlift, we're going to see huge gains as far as explosive capability and huge gains as far as like <clears throat> explosive power. Um, now, again, getting that to transfer into the ring, two totally different things. And I think we can work on that still. But, um, <clears throat> you know, after that, it, at what point, I guess, we, we circle back and we go, okay, what point is this athlete strong enough? You know what I mean? At what point do we kind of modify his program so that it, um, you know, we correct any imbalances or, do, or we, we work on, instead of absolute strength, we start working on absolute speed. You know, we, we kind of go off of that continuum, the well, strength, speed it's, continuum. It's funny. Yeah, you funny you say that because, you know, we got a lot of flack with the stuff we did with John Jones. But at the same time, people don't see what we really did with John Jones. You know, they only seen the Instagram videos yeah. or the the comparison where he was super pumped up to the and compared it to like the highlight reel yeah. rather than the day to day grind and, and yeah. individual. You know, people were like, "Well, did it slow him down for his fight?" Well, if it slowed him down for his fight, it definitely wasn't the lifting that slowed him down for his fight because he stopped doing any kind of power lifting movements. So you want to say six months before the fight? Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. Is at what point are the, is the, the enough strength is there? I think that fighters right now are super efficient in the cage, mm -hmm. but when you get them outside of the cage, some, not all of them, obviously, mm -hmm. but some struggle with certain movements outside of the cage. You know, something that has to do with what they're not going to do every day in the cage. How often do you see a fighter inside the cage do any type of jumping? Realistically, yeah. aside from your random Superman punch, your random or that Romero flying knee, yeah, yeah. yeah. like yeah. very rarely you'll see notice all the ones that are doing a random jump. Uh, Anthony Pettis, uh, w back when he did the kick off the cage, like very rarely. Yeah, but nobody. Well, we're not gonna be able to teach that exactly, <laughs> and that's something just an athlete I think, will be able to. Do. I think. I think the problem with that is you talk about Anthony Pettis. And that kick, right? Mm -hmm. One, none of us would be able to teach him how to do that. In I don't the care. What, so, so what where kind did he, coach where he did he get that from? Yeah, he had that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's I mean, not he's able. You, to do. It's not something you need to teach. And you know, and you've seen it with Anthony's come in the gym and stuff. But uh, I think a lot of times, an athlete is just an athlete. They yeah. can do their own. That, that, let's, they, not overthink, let's not overthink it. They, they yeah. just start reacting and letting their own athleticism take over. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of coaches try getting too specialized mm -hmm. and trying to simulate too many things when realistically you could have 10 fighters, all of them have a completely different style, so to speak. And something they excel more in the fight game, mm -hmm. but you try to simulate that in the gym, it's very easily to simulate it when they are strictly worrying about the pattern they have to do, the, the when there's no really outside element 
to throw them off a certain sequence that they practice. See, and the good fighters already have that. Exactly. We don't need to teach that. Um, I guess kind of changing, um, changing thoughts here. But uh, you know, I, I wanted to get your thought on you know kind of your injury prevention stuff. Um, we talk a lot about training in the gym, you know, in fight camp or in season or even off season, no days off, you know, hardcore going at it. But at the same time, how do we keep these athletes healthy? So one of the one of the mechanisms we use over at, at AR is always going to be movement quality. You know, we stress that you know first and foremost for most of our guys. Well, not most, everybody. Um, and again, really. Quality training is probably your best injury prevention. And at the end of the day, it really is. Um, <clears throat> now, most athletes we have come in the door, we perform an FMS on, so functional movement screen, developed by a guy named Gray Cook, way smarter yeah. than I am, you know. But it, it's or any of us. yeah, or any of us, right? And uh, you know, it, it's it's a group of uh, movement patterns that we get to watch the athletes um, kind of perform in a static environment, and that kind of gives us a baseline idea of where we need to go from here and where we can improve. And that's kind of what we do. We kind of have our own version of it. Um, I like to see people movements. Mm-hmm. Um, Just check there. I, I, I like, I like we, mm-hmm. we use like the wall squat a lot. Yeah. See the mobility. Um, Just, Just different stuff like that. Um, I had spoke in one of the articles we had done about a kid that came in mm-hmm. and had all this height, but the kid couldn't do a single thing I asked him to do. Yeah. You yeah. know, but uh, go ahead. Well, it's it's funny you mention that because there are a lot of great athletes who perform terribly on the FMS, you know. And they just have such incredible athleticism. They can kind of mask that. Yeah. You know, you see all kinds of crazy stuff like a ton of knee valgus and, and, and when they're doing their, you know, the broad jump or they're doing any kind of vertical jump and things like that. So <clears throat> with the FMS in mind, you know, we, we perform all these movements and we kind of take um, a baseline from there. We get a score. And that tells us what we can work on, you know. So, so one of the one of the movement screens is always going to be like shoulder mobility, right? And shoulder mobility has a huge correlation with like um, not only not only injury prevention in the shoulder, you know, but low back disorder, you know, anything regarding the low back. You know, we go by kind of the joint by joint approach, so being that like more or less every joint is is stacked on another joint that kind of has a, a different range or a different role, right? So a good example of this is like your ankles are supposed to be mobile, right? They move around, they're designed to flex and, you know, um, flexion, extension, all those things. Whereas your knee's not, you know, your knee kind of moves yeah, in one, one direction. Exactly. Same thing with your hips. Um, and then we go back to the low back and we like the low back to be stable in about every training environment. And where you derive a lot of your movement from is going to be your T-spine. So a lot of times... <clears throat> what we'll notice in some athletes, you know, say, for instance, like they have poor shoulder mobility, right? They get a one score, which is like the best you can get is a three. That means you're perfect. One would be like, hey, we got some work to do. You know, those athletes are more susceptible to injury. So then in regards to their training, you say between a set, you know, in the middle of one of their circuits or whatever, what have you, we program a corrective in there. You know, and for, for a lot of those people, correctives can be just as exhausting as like, you know, okay. any, any exercise. Well, there's no reason to be throwing him in all these exotic workouts. Yeah. If the kid, that's what I spoke about, the kid couldn't even do a push-up. Yeah. Without... If they can't accept their arms straight over the head, yeah. it's coming out in front of them at a 45. I, I see, yeah. like, baseball players, shoulder, shoulder mobility is huge. Yeah. Um, and a lot, of, I think a lot of the injuries in baseball 
is because they're only programmed to do one thing. Mm -hmm. And anytime you get any outside of that, mm -hmm. you know, that slot, bang, there yeah. it goes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a big thing with like all the baseball, like, you know, Tommy John with the elbow and then, because yeah. I think it starts with here and it starts with the core and as pitchers, if you're weak here, you're putting a lot of stress. A lot more stress on something else that shouldn't be. Especially, or yeah. throwing athletes in general. Yeah, no, 100%. That's, that's something that, like Eric Cressy talks about a ton. You know, he's got all kinds of pro MLB players, and, and his job is to kind of keep them, them healthy in one regard or another. And, you know, he, he has a ton of modalities just to not only keep the range in that shoulder to make sure it's still strong. Um, it's funny, you bring up a lot of guys who get out of position and just don't have the strength. Um, one thing we've we've started to mess with, um, or at least I'm speaking for myself here, has been FRC techniques, so functional range yeah. conditioning, and that was developed by a guy named Dr. Andrea Spino, and it's just blown up. You know, it's trained, it's changed a lot of the, uh, a lot of just athletic forefront. Um, you see it in like power lifters, you see it in baseball players. There are a ton of athletes right now using it, and it's in a lot of it's based around like developing end range control and, and deriving strength in that end range, you know? So like you said, <clears throat> most athletes, you know, are stronger. Say we were doing like a curl, they're strongest at that mid range and they kind of drop off at the top and the, at the bottom too. So your job is to be able to recruit that, um, recruit that strength at, at any at, range. At, yeah. the, at the weakest point. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's some really neat stuff. You know, I, 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 I've seen a lot of people start to implement that and even, you see, like a, a guy like Kevin Oak, who's going to be yep. lifting in December, he does a ton of FRC stuff. Yeah. You know, he's got a pretty good PT who takes care of him, and he's blowing, you know, blowing the top off at of 220, right? Well, like he's and just killing it. Like you say that, you know, I've, I've seen some of that stuff, I haven't gotten too far into it. But essentially, like some of the accommodating resistance stuff we do, you know, we're teaching athletes to push through that sticky point and still be explosive at the top of the lift, at the bottom of the lift. And, uh, I think everyone's, you know, in their comfort zone, they're efficient right there. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of going back to the fighters mm -hmm. is sometimes when they get out of, out of the cage or even in a position they're not used to, I think that's where a lot of deficiencies come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of circling back to some of the injury prevention stuff too. And um, one thing I think we do pretty well too is we do a ton of unilateral training. Um, rear foot elevated squats, single leg deadlifts, all those things, you know, because if you look at a lot of, a lot of athletes, they have to produce power on one leg yep. and, you know, a, in either, um, a single leg dominant movement or just a single leg movement, you know, so you look at fighters, they stand in a staggered stance or, mm -hmm. you know, even, even, you know, football players, if you get two feet stuck in the mud, I mean, you're in <laughs> yeah, trouble, yeah. you know, the, the only people I really think who... Have, truly act bilaterally you're always are going to be like rowers you know because your feet are kind of in a fixed point and you're yeah, rowers, okay. yeah I can't really think power of too many other people yeah powerlifters no, too someone, you know? someone that literally everything involves staying in the same spot yeah exactly exactly and that's not many that's not many sports it really isn't so yeah. um, for us a huge huge um, and, and I've done this with, with teams and large group groups a huge thing for injury prevention has always been um, implementing single leg training and that's something that that kind of came into my 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 vision or at least my, my train of thought not too long ago when I did my first internship over at Elevate um, you know because I was always a real like 
big, um, like I was telling you earlier, linear periodization guy and, and ton of bilateral stuff. And I was really, really lacking any unilateral stuff, you know, and then it, it, it showed itself, it surfaced itself, you know, because toward the end of my career, I was getting banged up left and right. I was having ankle injury, knee injury, you know, X, Y, and Z. Part of that having to do with like probably some of the training modalities that we used when I, when I was in college, but part of that had to do with my own training. And <clears throat> when I, when I made the transition to adding in much more single leg exercise and adding in more corrective exercise, I think it was a huge missing link. And ever since, you know, I've just kind of stuck to it. Um, something as simple as like a rear foot elevated squat for a lot of athletes makes much more sense because, you know, you, you look at, I, I'll use like one of my soccer players as an example, right? The, bi de the bilateral deficit's like huge. You know, I don't know if you guys ever talked about any of that stuff, but like um, with like a rear foot elevated squat, it's been shown for whatever reason that athletes can produce more force on one leg than they can on two. Mm -hmm. I have a kid. That's why you have NBA guys who dunk off of one leg. Yeah, exactly. Like they can't jump. Yeah. Most can't jump with the same height. Exactly. High, but exactly. Yeah. So I have a kid who, who rear foot elevates squats like, you know, he's probably 80 pounds or something like that, but he can, he can hold up 50s in each hand and squat with it. Well, he probably couldn't get a barbell on his back and squat 200 pounds. You know, but he can sing like squat, you know, yeah, two kettlebells, exactly. you know, yeah. the same thing, you know, if you yeah, do the exactly. math. And, and I've seen that in my own training too. I mean, there are times where you, well, I've loaded up 275 on a front squat or something like that and do take it for, you know, six or seven reps or something like that. But I couldn't redo that over and over yeah. set after set if I were doing, you know, something yeah. bilateral. So that that's going to be a huge thing. Um, you know, and then again, lastly... I always circle back to movement quality because that's, for me, paramount importance. Because for a lot of my athletes who come in the door, especially the ones who are, who are younger, 8th grade, 7th grade, those guys <clears throat> haven't hit puberty yet. You know, haven't had a huge growth spurt or maybe just went through one and don't necessarily have either the motor control or the strength <clears throat> to really make a, a ton of muscular strength happen very quickly. You know, so if I can teach those guys to move better then they perform better. Now, are we always focusing on strength, focusing on strength? Yes. But well, for a lot of those guys, yeah, if I can get them to move better, then they can express the power that they do have and they have better proprioception and better awareness, you know? And they can be better prepared to make those strength gains when they're able to Exactly. Do. That's what I was, I was about to ask you. You deal with a lot of, you know, I guess middle school or even early high school athletes. Yeah. And, you know, I get, I get some of them in here and I deal with, you know, some parents... My kid needs to get faster. My kid needs to get stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, well, no shit. No. But at the same time, that you know, where are they at in their... The parents always get to tell you this is what they need yeah. before they even know they what's wrong. They don't even know what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. there you go. They, they, they're <laughs> like, oh, my kid's uh, feet are real heavy. He gets down first baseline. He's slow. Mm -hmm. This and that. He needs to get faster. Well, probably doesn't help. Oh. He's probably sitting here on the video games. No, he, He's sitting at his ass the whole time. <laughs> his backside's underdeveloped. His yeah. and he's not like mobile. This. He can't. And he's <coughs> walking around with an eighty-year-old hunch yeah. at 13, 14 years old. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I guess where I was going to go with that is, is you know, where these kids are at. You know, if they've matured, are they going through maturity? Like, are they before? Like, you know, I guess. Fighting that against the coach, or not the coaches, uh, but more the parents, 
Mm-hmm. When they say my kidneys get faster, stronger, well, yeah, of course. Well, you, you fight, you you have the exact same fight no matter what level you're dealing with. It just depends who you're dealing on with. Mm-hmm. Is Middle school and high school, you're dealing with the parent. Mm-hmm. With Once you get like later years of high school, college, you're dealing with a coach or a professional athlete, you're dealing with a coach. Mm-hmm. Any deficiency is always going to fall back on you rather than, oh, well, maybe we should have done this a little bit more. Maybe we should have done this a little bit more. No, right away they're going to point the finger at the strength coach. Oh, well, my guy doesn't move the same because of you. Well, I think a lot of kids, you know, it comes down to movement. Yeah. A middle school kid, like, there's no, like, I mean, strength is, yeah, it's there. But if the kid's walking like a freaking duck. Yeah, that's a bigger problem. Yeah, yeah. Like, at at that age, they have yet like you talked about motor units earlier, but like they don't know how to recruit mm-hmm. or utilize proper muscles in order to do some movements properly. Like you mm-hmm. see a kid, he goes in here to try to do a squat, his knees are caving, his ankles are rolling in, and all of a sudden, well, yeah, there's a lot of deficiencies there, mm-hmm. but. Maybe it's not necessarily a joint deficiency. Maybe it's just a deficiency. He doesn't know how to activate the right muscles. So mm-hmm. that's where it comes back. You kind of like, all right, teach him, show him a couple movements to warm up proper muscles, squat again. And all of a sudden, if that fixes it, then that could be, okay, he just didn't know how to recruit those muscles. Mm-hmm. He knows how to recruit them now. And then we can excel from there. Yeah. Then yeah, other like kids, you see a lot of that. Like, how, how do you deal, deal with that a lot of times? So with with kids like that, you're right. You're like proper recruitment is always going to be huge. Um, for a lot of our guys, anything that we think is important, like squatting, single leg deadlift, all those things, we do every single day. And we do it either through corrective exercise, we do it through their, through our movement prep, we do it through um, you know any kind of activation work that we do, we do it through any power work that we do, and then we circle back to like our strength training. We kind of have a a, a system in place. That allows us to progress or regress an athlete, you know, so say, you know, for instance, this athlete has a really, really poor overhead squat or has a really poor, okay, inline lunge would be a perfect example. Okay, and his ankles roll, his knee, uh, his knee falls over his toe, a lot of those things. So we're going to put stuff into the program that kind of reinforces those good habits and good patterns. So something as simple as, um, you know, we always start foam rolling and we stretch. And we do activation stuff, you know, and that's where it starts to get interesting was, you know, when we do activation, okay, we use a lot of mini bands and stuff like that. Um, we put athletes in good positions and we ask them to perform a certain movement, whether it's a lateral walk or a forward walk or even a hip flexion, hip extension kind of, kind of exercise, something like that. And then when we get to the, the uh, dynamic warm-up, we'll ask them to do like a, a, uh, a reverse overhead lunge, right? They got to keep their hands up. They got to lunge backwards, and it, it's funny how much it cleans up the movement when they're going backwards for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, that's like yeah. a perfect example. When they're doing like a reverse lunge as opposed well, to you ask them to do like a normal lunge, it'd be a mess. It's, it's funny, it's funny you say that, but I think what it is is kind of going back to the fire. I keep going back to the fighters being efficient in the cage, but when they get out, sometimes they're like a fish out of water. I think, we're, you know, obviously we're always going forward, so they've gotten used to this movement going forward all the time. And they mm-hmm. revert to whatever it is that they move that certain way. Well, going backwards yeah, is almost like more like a instinctual thing, mm-hmm. you know. 
And so bad habits that they've developed go out the window. Because they're like, they don't know any bad habits. So all they can do is, okay, well, they told me to step back. Yeah, they don't know bad habits. Like, on a reverse swap or reverse lunge. Yeah. They're able to just think about strictly what they're being told to do Mm -hmm. rather than, all right, I heard what he told me to do. Now I'm going to do what my (laughs) version of that is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I absolutely agree there. You know, they kind of have a a blank page. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They don't really have anything ingrained. Um, So then after, say, we do a dynamic warm up or something like that, we go into like our power development or even... In a, in a circle back, um, you know, along with activation, we do like correctives there too. So if it's like an ankle mobility thing, if it's a hip mobility, that's really, that'd be a good time to implement like a corrective. But after the dynamic warm up, we go into like power recruitment, right? CNS stuff. And most of the time, for kids like that age, like middle school, early high school, who don't have great proprioception, um, med balls are like perfect, you know, because you get every bit of the, the clean, the triple extension. Yeah. Type. Um, type body movement without having to worry about teaching them exactly, exactly. without exactly. making Kids sure can. they're catching a barbell yeah. correctly or it's crashing yeah. right even the chin then you gotta deal with mom I can't, and dad I can't clean yeah. shit anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and so for those kids who, who just aren't very good at like even like med ball work for instance right yeah. we'll, what we'll do is we'll take away joints right instead of doing like a bilateral you know rotational med ball throw Maybe they start on two knees, nice and tall, you know, so then they don't have to worry about keeping their feet in place. They don't have to worry as much about like, um, their hips. Maybe we put them in a half kneeling stance so then they can't rock their hips. And you can where their deficiencies are at too. Yeah. You know, if they perform one on their knees, amazing. Yeah. Then you get them on their feet. Now, you know, you know, somewhere probably in their hips or their yeah. hips, knees, knees or ankles. Yeah. Well, yeah, you see it because they'll throw a med ball in a half kneeling position and they'll follow themselves, you know. Yeah. All right, well, there it is. You know, we got to work on that core stability and they start to get it over time. Yeah. Um, and then when we go into like exercising, you know, or, or the, strength, the strength portion, like I said, we always have like a system of progression regression. So say my kid can't do a rear foot elevated squat, right? Well, then a good regression for that guy would be uh, a split squat, you know, which is basically an inline lunge, you know. And he starts in half kneeling position, starts in, um, and make sure that he's all set up, maybe with a kettlebell, maybe not, you know, for the first couple reps. And he just works through the movement, you know, and it's a very static environment. Say he still isn't very good at that, then maybe we help him unload. So we put him on like a TRX or even like you can use a band or a Kaiser if you have one of those. And you can take some of the pressure off so we can just practice the pattern, you know. Like whenever we teach people to squat, sometimes we use a TRX just to get some load bearing off of them. Like I have older clients, we go with the TRX sometimes when we're teaching just the pattern 